Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. With me today is Natasha Vernier, co-founder and CEO of Cable. Natasha was also on the Monzo scale-up journey. She was employee 17 all the way through over 2,000 people and was there when they went from 100 to over 4.5 million customers. Natasha chose to start her next company, Cable, at an interesting time. Most people think that you start a company when you have nothing to lose and not too many other responsibilities, but she chose to start a company right as she was building her family. So we'll hear how that went for her as well. I signed the first term sheet for Cable a week before our first daughter was born. And then about four months ago, our son was born. So it's been kind of lockstep with growing Cable and growing our family, which has, I don't think I would necessarily advise people to do that. But I think it's certainly possible and and worth talking about because it's not the most common startup journey. Yes. Or a lot of times, you know, if someone's having a baby, it's a male founder and it's not affecting them in the same profound way. I guess I'm also literally nursing a two-week-old as we're talking about this. So we both have been through the birth and kid experience. It's definitely different on the woman's side. Not that the dad doesn't have a role, but uh, certainly. So tell us a little bit about what was that actually like? Did it make you not want to found a company? Did you think about it? Or, you know, how did you think about it differently? given that you knew you were going into that life phase? I think it probably pushed me into the startup journey a little bit more quickly. It was a little bit like now or never. It's probably never a good time to start a company, but I think it had we had a child already and with the financial implications and knowing how tiring it would be and all of the stresses that would come with that, I probably would have not done it. So really, I think knowing that we were expecting our first child pushed me into it more quickly maybe than I would have done before. I was also. I guess, feeling a little bit more cutthroat and like I wanted to make the right life choices for me and for the family. And so I was not willing to do a job anymore or move into a job that I wasn't fully satisfied with. I wanted to be happy in myself and happy with what I'm doing every day, because I think that's hopefully going to be the best way to bring up kids and and happy kids and kids that feel fulfilled and follow their dreams. But it was definitely interesting and challenging Totally. I think that having happiness in your own life and even showing people that you can have happiness in your job is a great role model for kids. And I think to your point, you just become kind of ruthless about your time and where you're spending it. So obviously the founding journey is really hard, but also really enjoyable. What made you think that you would like it? Was it the Monzo experience or was it always something you had in the back of your head? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. It was a bit of a roller coaster, actually. When I joined Monzo, I was very naive and thought that, yeah, one day I'd start a company and that would be great. 
And then quite quickly into the Monzo journey, I saw how stressed Tom and the other founders were and the sacrifices they had to make and the emotional toll it took. And I thought, absolutely not, never going to do that. And then I think it was probably about three or three and a half years into Monzo, I'd learned so much and I'd started thinking that maybe I'd make different decisions or I would do things slightly differently or I was feeling like if I had been given a budget, there was stuff that I would do or could do and I felt a little bit limited. And I think that I came back around to the idea that you know if I was as emotionally invested in a job as I was in Monzo, I really, really cared about it. Um, still do, but you know, when you're in it, you really care about it, and it feels all-consuming. If I was going to feel that way about any job, then it really should be a job where I could make the decisions and I could decide those things that were frustrating me at Monzo. So I decided that, yeah, a mixture of timing with having a baby and the fact that I had learned so much at Monzo from some of the smartest people I've ever met. And starting to feel like I, I wanted to be making those decisions myself. It was the right time for me to go and do it. That said, I was still incredibly naive and have realized since just how naive I was, the learning curve has been incredibly steep, obviously, over the last couple of years. Probably always feels like that. And did you have the idea for Cable for a while or how did you get the idea? I had the general idea. So when I was at Monzo, the team that I led, the financial crime team, was in the first line of defense at the bank. And that meant that we were responsible for identifying financial crime risks and building controls. And there was another team in the second line of defense that was responsible for basically testing those controls and making sure they were effective, and compliant. Half our team were engineers and data scientists, and we had so much technology. But that second line of defense team was very small, had no engineers or data scientists, and had no technology. So I had that insight at Monzo. And thought that there was definite opportunity to build technology specifically for second line teams to help them understand the effectiveness of their financial crime controls. Only when I left Monzo did I have, I guess, the headspace and the time to actually come up with some ideas about how that might work and what it might look like. So I had the general idea, but not the details pinned down. Yeah, amazing. So you know, I think a lot of women who might be wanting to have kids and might be wanting to fundraise are thinking through it. And I think there are probably very few good examples that have literally had children around multiple fundraising rounds as yourself. And having kids is not easy, right? I'm sure you know, I'm sure you have direct experience. I have direct experience and friends who've had miscarriages, complicated pregnancies. It's, it's never a straightforward path. It's often not a straightforward path to have a kid. And so, A, what was the hard parts about kind of being in that phase of life while you're fundraising. And then we'll go into some advice on what you would tell other people to do if they were doing the same thing. Yeah, we had a pretty long and difficult time because I'm obviously married to a woman. Uh, getting pregnant wasn't a simple thing for us to do. So we had to go through IVF. Um, we'd actually been going through IVF for a couple of years or more before my wife got pregnant with our first daughter. That was actually during my time at Monzo as well. And Stephanie, my wife, got pregnant in about the sort of four or five months before I left Monzo. So when I left and was starting to think about cable and starting to work out how to fundraise and what that meant, Stephanie was pregnant and nearing her due date. I think at that point, I was probably just really naive to what was going to happen, how much time and energy would be sapped from lack of sleep and from looking after a baby and from having another human around, and especially during the pandemic. She was born in August 2020, so right in the middle of lockdown. So we had no help. 
And then our friends all left London quite quickly after that. So we felt very isolated. But I signed the term sheet for our pre-seed about a week before Delphine was born. Then spent the next month really getting used to being a mother and helping Stephanie. And then dove into trying to figure out how to start a company properly. So we had some money in the bank. And actually, that's an interesting thing maybe to talk about. So when we were raising that pre-seed, the money was predominantly coming from Local Globe. The partner Remus there led the round. And I did have to have a conversation with him of, you know, I can't take a 30 or 40k salary like you hear the classic founder story with Stephanie being pregnant and with rent. And, you know, we wanted to be able to afford some childcare, although we couldn't in London. We actually had to move out of London to get that. I needed more money. So we had to have a conversation about what salary I could take. That felt awkward to have. And it, it felt like I was asking for something extraordinary, I suppose. But Remus was really great when we had that conversation. He was very understanding. And actually, I went into that conversation worried about how it would make me look, whether it would make me look like I wasn't committed to the company and whether I was invested and understood the purpose of the startup journey, which is, you know, the gains, the big win comes much later down the road. But actually, Remus really understood why I needed that and and the stage of life I was at. So that was really, really fantastic of him and, and helpful and made me feel very much more comfortable going into that. In some ways, it kind of helps you self-select an investor, right? Like watching their reaction to a request like that. It does. And I mean, it would be a fascinating thing to ask investors before you get that far down the road. Actually, in reality, I'd already signed the term sheet, I think, at that point. So um, I was already already stuck with him. And luckily, it worked out okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad it worked out. By the way, I also, I had my first in uh, July 2020. So very similar period to you. And it's right. There was so much fear because it was really the first few months of the pandemic and we didn't know what caused it. And and so you absolutely had no help. Like you didn't want to let anyone in your house or in your bubble because it was terrifying. How did you manage the isolation of that and the like sleep deprivation of having a new child and trying to create a, a company? Like how did you mentally get through that period? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Well, add on top of that, so quite quickly after we had Delphine, my wife and I knew that we didn't want to have a big gap between our children, so... We, you know, being two women, we had the lucky advantage that, you know, I could get pregnant while Stephanie was still breastfeeding and our kids could then be close together and it wouldn't be an additional burden on Stephanie's body and on her physical health. So actually in the first, I think it was probably month four or five of cable, I was trying to get pregnant in the middle of a pandemic with a four or five month old baby. And I ended up having an ectopic pregnancy. I remember we were trying to hire our first engineer and our first data lead and I had these calls scheduled to give them these offers and we were desperate to hire them. Like it was me and a business plan and my co-founder had agreed to join, but she wasn't starting until January. And I was trying to get them to join this company that was really nothing at that time. And I had to move the calls to give them the job offer because I was in hospital having an ectopic pregnancy, trying to persuade the doctors that that's what was happening when they wouldn't believe me. And so it was, it was pretty stressful and we didn't have much support. And throughout all of that IVF time, you weren't allowed anyone in your house. And so we were having to go to the hospital for IVF, but we couldn't take our daughter who was five or six months. They wouldn't let us take her. And so my mum was having to drive up for the day from Cheltenham, which is, you know, two, two and a half hour drive. And she was like 
secretly sneaking into our house because she shouldn't have been there, looking after Delphine, then driving home the same day so that we could pop out for a 30 minute IVF appointment. It was a lot. It was crazy. But, you know, if I had understood truly how difficult a startup was and the emotional toll it takes and the physical toll it takes and the crazy ups and downs of it all, then I probably wouldn't have done it at the same time as having kids. And in reality, like we've survived. Everything's, mm-hmm. you know, everything's going well. We now have two kids. My wife and I are still happy. We haven't killed each other during all of this craziness. <laughs> Cable is doing well <laughs> and we've raised more money. So I think that the thing that I always think about is I don't know that I'd advise it as a common course, but it's absolutely possible. And this narrative of, you know, you need to be young and you need to have no commitment to start a company. Well, if that's the view that people take, then we're never going to have a diverse set of founders because it will only be people coming out of university with a personal pile of money behind them and they're able to take no salary and they are they have no other commitments. And we won't get brilliant companies that solve the needs of all of society. We'll get, you know, more Facebooks and more Twitters, which they're great companies and they're very, very valuable and they've done a lot of good, but also they're not solving necessarily deep, deep problems that a lot of the world have, like some of the companies that have been started recently, I think. I could not agree more. And I think that's why we want to have you on this podcast saying that you asked for a higher salary, right? Because the truth is, there's a lot of ways to start a company and the recipe for a founder comes in many different flavors. And I actually hate the term friends and family round because like, I don't have friends and family that could write me a 100K check, right? Like, I think I'd struggle to get like 5K from my friends and family. So like, I think there's this concept that, you know, yes, you're risk taking, but it's, you're kind of set up to do so. And that's not the, the reality. The reality is you can start a company from any background with any problem that you want to solve. You just have to think about it differently. Absolutely. And that friends and family concept, I agree. It's really pretty awful. And it's funny, when we raised the pre-seed round, I was lucky and fortuitous to get some really wonderful angel investors involved that definitely meant that I had an easier journey to raising the money from Local Globe. And they introduced me to lots of people and they've been very helpful. But they were all men. They were all white men. And as I was raising our seed round last year, I knew that I wanted to make sure that our cap table was more equal. I was trying to get to a place of by number, 50% female on our cap table. And so that took so much work, like a remarkable amount of work. Absolutely doable though, but you have to make some sacrifices. You actually did it. Oh yeah, we're, we're, I think we're at 52% female by number. And actually the partner at CRV that led the seed round is a woman. So if you also look at capital, I think that we're more than, more than 50% as well. But it took loads of work, right? Like I lined up as many meetings as possible with as many female angel investors as I could three or four months before I even started fundraising to build those relationships. And I was posting on Twitter asking for intros to female angels. And it was fascinating because I kept getting emails and DMs on Twitter from men I had never met saying, oh, you know, I heard you're raising. I think what you're doing is great. Can I give you some money? I never once got a message like that from a woman. And actually, when I said no to some of these men, they were quite upset. And it was such an odd experience for me that they presumed that I would take the money and they felt like they had the right to give me that money. And actually, like, if I were to go back and do all the fundraising again, I think I would do it all quite differently from the beginning. But hey, I had never fundraised before. So there's so much that you learn 
even from raising a very, very small amount of money. We've only raised, you know, $5 million. Yeah. Well, what would you have done differently? I would have been very much more aware of the makeup of the cap table with the pre-seed round. Absolutely. So I would have made sure to be at least 50% female from that first pre-seed round. And I would have also tried to increase the diversity across all of the other ways to measure diversity from the get-go. When we did the seed round, I actually sent out a diversity form questionnaire to all of our investors. And so we actually tracked it and we've written a blog post about, you know, the ethnicity and the nationality of all of our investors. It's really, really interesting. I would have paid a lot more attention to that at the beginning. I also would have been a lot more picky about the investors that I felt would be useful for us in the long term, not just in that moment, in that immediate sort of fundraising time. So a lot of the angel investors that we got on board with our seed round, they are CEOs and co-founders of other reg tech firms. They are marketing experts, they're growth experts, they are chief revenue officers or heads of partnerships. And they have been endlessly helpful over the last year since we raised that seed round. They are, they give me intros unprompted, they reach out with advice, they are always responding to the investor emails that I send with helpful thoughts or tips. And it's very interesting because those investors actually are quite different now to the other investors who are perhaps not in the same industry or who have not founded a company themselves recently or do not work in those areas that we're really pushing hard at now, growth or marketing, whatever it might be. So I think I'd be a lot more careful about the diversity and the makeup of the cap table. And I would also be a lot more picky, a lot more selective about the specific skills that I wanted to bring in with those angel investors and not just take money for money's sake. We'll include a link to blog post in the show notes because it'd be great for people to see that. And I think it's important to think about diversity from all the lenses, right? I think gender and race are, are one lens, but there's a lot of lens. And I always think I've been involved in a number of initiatives to try to increase access for diverse founders to venture and always with a unique lens. Like I definitely care about helping women, but I also care about the LGBTQ experience and the black founder experience and the Latina founder experience. And if for diversity and inclusion, I am a white woman. So, you know, that's not diversity for me, actually. And so it's important to care about the experience that you have not had. And find ways to connect with people in those communities and include them in your cap table or build relationships with them as founders early if you can, right? So I'm glad to hear you thinking about that on the founder side. And I am getting that question more, right? I have more founders ask us not only what my background is, but also how our portfolio looks, how we've backed people. And it's starting to become a more topic where there's more accountability than there has been prior, which is great. So the friends and family round idea. I know a couple of you know second-time founders who have been starting their next venture recently. And they've set a minimum check size for angel investors. And I find that so frustrating. It really limits the diversity that they'll have on their cap table. And it gets such a crazy idea because if you're taking money to for money's sake, you might as well just go and get it from VCs. Managing lots of angels is a bit of a headache. You've got to get more people to sign more documents. It can be real uh, an operational overhead. But if the point of bringing in angel investors is to get their expertise, to get their ideas, to get their diversity of thought, then how on earth can you set a minimum check size? Yeah, I think it's really crazy when people set minimum check sizes. It limits the ability to diversify your cap table hugely. And it's also a false narrative that people putting in more money will help more. The truth is they'll help you however they'll help you. And actually, I like micro-angel. I don't have money to truly angel, but I micro-angeled into some things at like one or $2,000, literally, like which is crazy low. 
But I help those companies the same way I would help them if I had more money and put in more money. I just don't. And similarly, there's actually the European VC is actually doing this great initiative where they have no minimum to get into funds, right? Because usually if you want to invest into a fund, it's also very expensive. And I think this access point, it's a really good point you bring up around minimum check size is massive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Massively important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we took money from angels and the lowest check size, I think, was $2,000 or $2,500. And those angel investors, honestly, have been amongst the most helpful. And interestingly, one of our VCs, they came in really late. We hadn't built a relationship before, but I really liked them. They actually only put in 100000 into our raise. And they've met with me every month. They've made intros every month. The impact, the, the access I've had to those VCs has been the same as the people that led our seed brand. So I think that trying to equate check size to help is not correct. And if you choose the right investors, it won't have any correlation. Yeah, I totally agree. We are going to move off having kids, but I just wanted to acknowledge, thank you for sharing before. And we kind of glossed over a few things, but like eptopic pregnancy is literally life-threatening, right? And so you had to go through that while you were trying to start a company. There's just so much on the emotional journey. We totally skipped over the emotional, let alone financial piece of IVF, where every time you don't know if it's going to work. And you know, I had postpartum anxiety with my first child. And I feel like there's just a lot of emotions and hormones that go with the process. And you're navigating all that at the same time you're navigating starting a company, which is not easy. So first of all, kudos to you for managing through that and getting to the other side, to your point, without wanting to kill your wife and still being a mom who's happy and enjoys her life. And if you had to give advice, not that you would advise it to somebody trying to do them at the same time, is there anything you think, going back, if you were to do them both at the same time again, kids and crazy money, because you did have your second as well um, successfully, which is great. What advice would there be, if any? That's a good question. And I'm so sorry to hear about your postnatal anxiety. It's it's so, so uh, it's not talked about enough, all of these things. With our second, I actually also had postnatal depression, which... I only suffered from for about a month, but it was really awful, really, really hard. And it was only through talking with my friends and family and my co-founder. Thank God I had a co-founder at that point. And actually opening up to our team at Cable as well, that I started to really feel better about all of that. I suppose the thing that I would mention that is to do with all of this is that people often put startup founders, like tech people on a pedestal, think that they're like superhuman somehow. I know that in my early days at Monzo, you know, everybody just thought Tom was so smart. He is so smart. But everyone put him on this pedestal, I think, as a bit of a hero, a bit of a superhuman person. And you know, he's talked openly with you about how he was dealing with all that was going on at Monzo. And it's just not the case that we're anything other than exactly the same as you or everybody else. And I think it's just important to make it really clear that people who start a company, they're no different. They have the same issues. They have the same problems. They have the same journeys. They have the same troubles, the same mental health issues, the same anxieties, the same depressions. But that's a really good thing because it means that anybody can do it and there is no wrong or right time to start a company. And hopefully if more and more people like Tom talk about how they were struggling 
through the startup journey, then more people who perhaps think that they can't or don't have the support around them or aren't at the right life stage to start a company. Maybe those people will start a company and then we'll end up with a much more diverse group of founders and company CEOs. And that will automatically mean that we solve more problems and that we help society more broadly than we would otherwise. Yeah. And I think it's also a good point to just talk to people, right? I think part of the reason why I share, I had a miscarriage and postpartum anxiety. And I think for me, and it sounds like for you too, if I was thinking about advising people, whatever you feel is normal, right? Whether that's related to pregnancy or just Tom running a company, like whatever you feel is normal. And it, I think it talking to people about it is really, really helpful. Like I didn't know what I had until I was talking to other people. And they were like, the amount of fear and anxiety that you have right now is like not normal and also not normally you. So like, we should probably understand what's going on. And I think that I didn't know like what to label it. And had I known that earlier, I probably would have addressed it earlier. But I think that having these conversations is really important, but it's also hard as a founder, right? I think you're so much the cheerleader for everyone else in the company that then like you need to remember for yourself to go back and be a cheerleader. Yeah. And and who who serves that for you? Is that friends or family? Is that the people in the company? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, definitely my co-founder and, and my wife. They, my poor wife, I think that, husbands, wives, partners, girlfriends, boyfriends of startup founders probably have the worst deal of all because as a founder, like you're doing what you want to do every day. Some days you feel amazing and like everything's going to be great. And some days it feels absolutely awful. And those emotions, they can actually happen within the same hour when you're a founder and the partners, the husbands and wives, they are there all the time having to bump you up, having to keep you happy, having to be your cheerleader. So I think they probably have it worst of all. And certainly my co-founder has been such a huge support to me as I've been going through all of my IVF journey and having the two babies and having postnatal depression. So I actually started the cable journey thinking I might be a solo founder very, very quickly, you know, at the point of signing the term sheet, realized that was probably going to be a mistake and asked Katie to join me. And she's been, been on the journey the whole way through. Thank goodness I made that decision. Thank goodness I knew Katie and that she could come on board because it would have been just so much harder without her. Um, so having a co-founder has been massively impactful for me. Yeah, and you just need that support network, whatever it is, right? I think it's so important. I'm glad you have it with your co-founder. And it's so funny. You're making me want to do a podcast where I bring on a partner. So we actually have at Kindred these founder forums where founders connect to each other and kind of go deep with the same group. But we've had one of the most impactful sessions that somebody had was actually bringing the spouses and the partners of the founders. Because to your point, it's a very, very lonely um, journey for them as well. So it's a really good point just to remember to go home tonight and say thank you to the people who keep you sane um, no matter what you're going through. So I think that's important. One thing I also want to talk about was a broader team. You know, you have an operating system that you've talked about publicly for cable. Talk to me a little bit about how you started creating that culture, what it means to you and why it's so important. Yeah, we wrote that operating system when we were a team of four, I think. We... Katie had worked at Square and then at Monzo and I had been at Monzo and a couple of companies before that. And we came into cable with a very clear idea of you know, some of the amazing things we wanted to bring over from those companies that we had learned so much from, but also some of the things that we just wanted to do differently. That also probably came from the fact that I had our daughter. She was only a couple of months old when we were thinking about this. And we're two women starting a company in the reg tech space. It's like, it's quite a tough, unusual combination, I suppose. And we wanted to be very, very clear from the outset of what company, what type of company we were building. We knew we wanted to make kindness a big part of that. Our first principle in our operating system is be kind. 
And we also wanted to be a lot clearer about what an operating system or I guess like a culture or a set of values meant for us at Cable. So often you have values or words on a wall or written down, but how do they actually get played out at your company? And what do they mean that you should do? And what do they mean that you shouldn't do? And how do they change as the company grows? All of those things um, we felt had been really poorly defined in the past. And so with the operating system, we wanted to come up with these principles, which I guess you could call values, but then really put a lot more words around those to make it really clear what that meant for us at Cable. So we've got a whole page on what it means to be kind, what it means to make transparent decisions, what it doesn't mean, how you should try and act in these ways during your working day and all of those things. And actually, the operating system has been a huge hiring tool for us. And gosh, 90, 95% of everyone who applies to work for us at Cable, they mention that the operating system is why they're applying. And our team love it. They, uh, <laughs> We were talking about it at the end of last year, reflecting on it, seeing if we needed to update it anywhere. And the team said that actually they care more about the operating system than they do our company mission, which certainly wasn't the intention, but I suppose it's not a bad way to be. I mean, I think it reflects the work that you've done, right? To your point, it's way more about translating that into behaviors and what it looks like than it is about creating the the high-level statements of what you want in the culture. That's incredible. Incredible story. And you've been on this scale-up journey before you founded the company. And as a result, a lot of times when you go to fundraise, it's actually easy because people are like, oh, you've seen this at Monzo. But the truth is you've seen it from one vantage point, right? And one seat. And so as you shifted into the founder journey, what was something that really surprised you? The amount of stuff there is to do as a founder. (laughs) There's just endless, endless admin and things to do. And I think if I ever start another company, it would be to deal with everything that needs to be done to start and run a company in the earlier stages. There must be ways to automate it all. It's just crazy. Just constant admin and stuff to be done. That, That blew my mind. Yeah, that's totally fair. You're doing this crazy journey. And as you mentioned, it's very rewarding for you. You know, what do you find to be the most rewarding part about being a founder? Is it what you get to create? Is it the team? You know, what is it for you? I love the team, getting the team together. We're fully remote and we get together once a quarter. We've got people all over Europe and actually people um, in Canada. And we do these quarterly meetups where we're sort of going around visiting all the countries that we have people in. And it's so great to get everyone together, the adrenaline and the excitement and the enthusiasm and to really realign on what we're doing and why. Those meetups are really special. But it's also really cool. Like we're we're very early. We've been building this technology product for compliance that hasn't been done before. And it's taken quite a lot of time to build enough technology to get to where we want it to be. We're still only scratching the surface of what we intend to build. But now seeing customers use it like on a daily basis, seeing them interact with it on a daily basis, multiple times a day, seeing those Slack pings come in is just fantastic. It's like, it's such a funny feeling to think that you had an idea, you persuaded a group of people to build this idea into something that exists in the world. And now other people have paid to use that. And you can see them interacting with it all of the time. It is a very odd, very unique feeling, um, but very special. Nothing like delighting customers. Well, I can see why you have been such a successful founder and why the customers are flocking and the team wants to stay. So thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Maria. Thanks, Natasha, for taking time to be with us. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. 
As always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone. And it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if Natasha's story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.